How many of you have heard about hydroponics? No, I did not say hooked on phonics. I said hydroponics. It is a way of growing things without the use of soil. And so nutrient-rich liquids are seeded with these plants that are growing through them and it's circulating and it nourishes the plant. They grow with no dirt, no rock, no sand. And it is what many are hoping will be a future way in which we can grow our food as we run out of land or we're in a hostile environment and certain crops won't grow because it's too hot or too cold in an area and they can be grown indoors. It's a pretty fascinating whole level of science and agriculture. Why do we talk about that right here and now? Because John 15 is Jesus using a parable about a vine, a vine that produces branches, branches that produce fruit. I don't know how many of you might have grown up with a grandparent or a family member having a little vine in their backyard, growing some grapes to make jelly of, or maybe you had a bigger vineyard than what I had as a little kid. Uh, jelly, we were lucky if we could get um, and that's where it pretty much stopped. John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking with some disciples of his on this last night before he is going to go to the cross for our sins. And he makes the powerful and poignant statement to his disciples in verse 1 that I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write its truths upon all our hearts. Jesus is using a metaphor that was widely understood in his day. The Hebrews, the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, they were known for having big vineyards and um, the living off of the vine to make wine for all kinds of uses. This was something widely understood by his audience. And as we've come to see in John's gospel, when Jesus says something, he usually has more than one layer that he's speaking about. He's usually much more, well, I guess to use a wine imagery, more full-bodied, textured. I don't know. I, I've had it twice in my life. No. It's, that's why God made H2O people, like pure water, glacier water. Okay. So, Jesus, he's got lots of nuance in our passage, and I'm going to bring two of them to light today. I hope that you will see this, and it's not just me making things up. He's tapping, first of all, into the Jewish understanding of Israel as God's vine. This is something we'll get into here in a moment. And he makes the shocking declaration that it is he, not Israel, that is the true vine. Israel, this is part of their national motto, as it were. A lot of the coinage around this time had uh, Jewish coins and currency had an image of a vine on it. Second thing Jesus does, not only does he say, you guys have all thought you were the, the vine of God's people, let me, know, let me tell you, I am the true vine. Then he also pivots in a second use of this metaphor as an illustration of discipleship. This abiding, fruit-producing relationship that exists between a living vine and living branches. And so these are the two statements that Jesus makes in verses 1 through 8. If this is an outline, take it as such, okay? Verses 1 through 8, Jesus is the true vine. That's the big idea. Jesus is going to then extrapolate. He's going to unpack this a little bit for us in verses 9 through 16 by calling his disciples to abide in him. So Jesus is the true vine, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 16, Jesus calls disciples to abide in him. Now, what is the idea behind a vine? Every vine is intended to produce fruit, and that was an absolute truth. The, there was also this understanding, irrefutable, that vines required a vine dresser, someone to cultivate it, to trim it back, to keep it producing fruit, to get rid of the dead weight and to make space for more branches to grow that will bear fruit. This is what everyone understood. So what's the point of the passage? If Jesus is the true vine and he's calling his disciples to abide in him, what is the point he's trying to make? I see it this way. Only those who abide in the true vine will bear fruit. Simply put, Jesus is life. And only those who believe in him will have life and bear godly fruit. So let's look at these two halves of the passage this morning. Verses 1 through 8, Jesus says, I am the true vine, not Israel. I mentioned already this idea that was 
rampant in Jewish thought that, uh, that they were God's chosen vine. And they get it legitimately. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21 says, I planted you, this is God speaking to Israel, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Psalms chapter 80, it speaks of another uh, example of this. The psalmist says that the Lord brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and then you planted it. This is speaking of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt, bringing them to the promised land, the land that God had 430 years prior committed to give to Abraham and his offspring. And in order to do that, all the nations who had been living in that land, who had been living in great wickedness and idolatry, were going to experience the judgment of God for their sins. And God was going to use as his judging instrument his own people through warfare. And so he clears the land and he planted Israel in it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The, the sad part is that in spite of God doing all this to Israel as a people, using the imagery of taking uh, a vegetable or a vine in this context and making sure that all the preparations, preparations are made so that this vine will take root and it will produce fruit. Anybody that has a garden has done this. And so this is what Christ or what God has done for Israel. And yet Israel consistently failed to produce good fruit. And what then came about is God's judgment. So I'm going to ask if you would turn to Psalm 80. Um, Psalm 80. And we look at uh, this passage and we, I want us to see a couple things. Because I believe that Jesus is referencing this passage in his conversation with the disciples. And he's making the point in verses 14 through 17 of Psalm 80. Hear this. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire and they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, why am I bringing this Old Testament passage into a New Testament sermon? It's because Jesus quotes from this passage by declaring himself to be the true vine instead of Israel. If you look at the passage, there's several things to notice. First is that God is the vine dresser in Psalm 80, just as Jesus declares that he is in John 15. Second, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated submission to his Father. Did you notice in verse 17 this phrase of the Son of Man? This phrase in verse 15, the Son for whom you have made strong for yourself. In Psalm 80, we see a son who is in submission to the vine dresser, to Yahweh. And in John, we see this. 
And in fact, Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as the Son of Man throughout the Gospel of John. The psalmist is writing of God's regard for his vine and the Son of Man whom God will make strong. And in Psalm 80, we see all these pictures. We see a vine, we see a vine dresser. We see a suffering son. And then we see a son of man whom Yahweh will make strong. And I can't overstate how important these Old Testament connections are. Because they reveal to us that Jesus is indeed this fulfillment of the Old Testament. That he is the one to whom all the scriptures point to. The better we know our Old Testament, the better we will read our Bibles. Notice as we go back to John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is the last of the seven statements that Jesus, uh, John records of Jesus saying in the gospel. These I am statements. Going back to chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the gate, I am the door. And later in that same chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then after raising a dead man from the grave in his tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. 25. Last week in chapter 14, we saw him declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says twice in this passage, verse 1 and verse 5, I am the vine. Jesus is making these connections for his disciples. All that Psalm 80 speaks of that points to a true vine, not apostate Israel. This is important for John's readers to understand. This gospel was written to Jews who had been chased out of the Jewish homeland after Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And they had, whether they were Jews by birth or had converted to Judaism through uh, becoming converts in that sense, John's writing to these people who are steeped in these scriptures. And he's arguing that Jesus is the vine. He is the life that we've been looking for. We thought that somehow we as a nation were going to reform ourselves and do something so magnificent that God indeed, as we read and saw, as Joanne led us in in the reading of Ezekiel 36, that he would put a new spirit and a new heart in us. It wasn't going to come about through personal reformation. It had to come about through the one who is the way, the truth, the life, who is the vine, who is the resurrection and the life, who is the door, the good shepherd, the light of the world. Jesus, John is pointing out to his audience that if they want to be a part of God's chosen vine, it is not going to come through their lineage as Jews. It will come by abiding or embracing Jesus. Israel failed to produce fruit in spite of all of God's nurture and provision, and therefore that vine was destroyed. Come back tonight to learn more about this as Dakota Rice leads us in a devotional from Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7, a chapter that spells out in even greater detail Israel's shortcomings. It makes Christ look better and better all the time. Now, we've spent a lot of time setting this up. So let's look and see what we learn about the vine dresser. As we look at chapter 15 in verse 2, 
we see, we're told in verse 1, that the father is the vine dresser. And what is the vine dresser's responsibility? What is the work that he does? Verse 2, we see that he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. And then he cuts back every branch that does bear fruit so that it will bear more fruit. Jesus speaks here of God's work. The removal of dead branches is a sign of judgment. And Jesus is teaching that true branches will produce fruit because they are connected to the true vine. And we have to remember, this is in the context of just minutes before one walked out a door who would sell out Jesus for some money. Judas. Judas left that room after Jesus had washed his feet along with the other disciples, after they had shared a meal together, and he went out to betray him. Judas makes it clear that he was not clean like the other disciples. And we're talking spiritual cleanliness. Uh, John 6 and John 13 speak of this. The New Testament makes it clear that some people may have a connection with Jesus or with the church, and they will display some symbols and some signs of the grace of the gospel, but not truly possess it. By their failure to bear fruit, they will show that the words of Jesus, those words that in themselves are eternal life, actually never flowed through them. And yet we see also this other aspect in verse 2. Not only are we seeing that the Father cuts off those that are connected to Christ but not abiding in Him, but we understand that any verse that speaks of apostasy must be held in context with all the other texts that say, no, it's not that you can be saved and lose your salvation, It's the fact that you were never abiding in the vine in the first place. The life of Christ never dwelled in you. It never flowed through you. But verse 2 also speaks to Christians. Those that are bearing fruit in order, God prunes them in order to bear more fruit. The writer of Hebrews taps on this same thought using the metaphor of a parent who corrects their children. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says that a loving, as our loving father disciplines his children, he does it for our good that we may share in his holiness. As we look at verse 3, we see that it is the word of Christ that makes one clean, which is the same thing as the father's word, as Jesus has said. Many times already, I only speak what the Father has told me to speak. I'm only doing what the Father has shown me. I'm only saying His words. Therefore, if it's Jesus' words that can save us and bring life to us, it is because they come from the Father and they possess eternal life. Thus, there is life in the vine. Jesus is spoken of in John 1, in verses 1 and 14, as the divine word. He is the vine. He has life in him. And because of that, his disciples will have life in them. 
Now, it's important as we look at verse 4 to understand what Jesus means by saying, abide in me and I will abide in you. I think it's kind of a conditional clause. If you remain in me, I will remain in you. Simply put, just as it is true with branches on a vine or any tree, you cut them off from the the branch off of the vine, it will die. To abandon the vine is certain death because no branch has life in itself. And so what is Jesus' point? Simply, we as Christians have to live in continual dependence on Jesus. Our life, our strength is drawn from his life, his strength. And ironically, this is consistent with Old Testament covenant language where God repeatedly said, as again, quoting from what was read just a few moments ago, that God would dwell in the midst of his people. He would be their God. They would be his people. And when he gathered people for his name from all nations, he would put within them, he would cleanse them with water, cleanse them from all their uncleannesses, from all their idols. He would give them a new heart and a new spirit, and he would put his spirit in them and cause them to walk in his statutes. Again, we see how these Old and New Testaments, how all halves, both halves of the Bible, connect to one another. Verses 5 through 6 kind of repeat what we have read already in verses 1 through 4, except they don't mention the fact of a vine dresser or the pruning of the faithful and fruitful branches. The contrast is stark. And what we see here is to abide in Jesus means to bear fruit. Not abiding in Jesus means what? Look at the passage. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There's a real element of judgment here. And Jesus is bringing this to the forefront. Now, we want to ask a lot of questions about this passage, such as, well, is there a minimum amount of fruit required in order to stay attached? Is there, is there just like a line somewhere that if I just do enough, then that's proof I'm in Christ and everything's going to be good and I don't have to worry about judgment or wrath or anything like that? Or... We might have a question because Jesus uses vines which produce grapes, and he's only going to look for grapes from the vine. Is Jesus looking for a particular kind of fruit? Is there just one thing he wants from us more than all other things, and then he will be satisfied? I think to reduce Jesus' teaching to a formula is not wise, and it does not reflect an understanding of his argument. The entire purpose of what Jesus is saying, the purpose of a branch is to produce as much fruit as possible. In verse 7, he shows us this fruit is the result of prayers in Jesus' name and for the Father's glory. Again, even the prayer is not to be understood as some kind of formula that we have to conclude with, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not wrong to do that. Jesus' point is not about the formula. His point is that fruit will be the result of two things. Abiding in Jesus 
and praying for and to the Father's glory. In other words, let our prayers, as you look at verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As a young kid growing up in the church, I thought that meant literally ask anything you want for and it's a genie in the bottle, you're going to get it. So kids, hear me. If you've been sleeping until now, I understand. This is a little heavy, but hear what I'm about to say. Jesus is not talking about filling out your Christmas list right here in verse 7. What he's talking about is the whatever you ask, and there's qualifiers for this. Asking according to the Father's will, according to the Father's purposes, and for the Father's glory, and for the furthering of the mission to go and make more disciples, anything that you ask around that, God is going to grant. Because you're praying for his work in you and through you to be accomplished. You're not praying for your own comfort and for your own selfishness. And Jesus says those prayers will be answered. The entire passage holds together based on this. Our dependence on Christ. And that dependence will look like obedience. As you look at verse 10. It will look like sharing in Jesus' joy in verse 12. It will look like witnessing to unbelievers in verse 16 and 27. So here's Jesus standing like an Old Testament prophet, declaring that any branch that doesn't produce fruit was good for nothing and would be burned in the fire. And the same was true for any and all who read this gospel, that if they rejected what Jesus claims to be and what John believes him to be, they also would see great judgment. John wants his readers to believe that salvation isn't found in Judaism. Salvation is not found in any other world philosophy. It's not found in any other experience. These things only last for a little bit. Real, genuine transformation of the heart and the spirit and the soul is found in Christ, the true vine. The same is true for us today. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are living your life detached from Jesus, let me just tell you, This is true for all of us. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning. We may disguise ourselves pretty well in this world so that we all look like fruitful branches, but the reality is there's a day coming where what is dead will be separated from what is living. And one will be burned and the other one will be welcomed. And it all has to do with your response to the claims that Jesus makes to be the way to God. To believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your personal sins against this holy creator. And to cry out for the mercy that he promises. There is no religion or philosophy that will lead to salvation Jesus is standing in front of his disciples and he says, guys, I am what you hope to see and experience in the Father. This God of the Old Testament, this God of the Jews, I am him in flesh. I am the path. I mean, when you think about Jesus making the statement back in chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What is the way? 
The way is the path, right? Truth is the teaching of the way. It's the content. And what's the final adjective? I am the life. He is the outcome. He is the end result. He is the desired goal. And there is no other way but through him, which certainly means rejecting Jesus leads to rejecting the salvation that he alone can provide. And as we look at verse 7 again, we see Jesus telling us that his words are the totality of his teaching. He's, he's using the word, words, to describe not only the things he's said, but also the things he's done. His words and his actions. Which is why, just a few minutes ago, he had told the disciples in chapter 14 and verse 26 that the Holy Spirit had to come after Jesus went back to heaven in order to remind the disciples of the things that Jesus had taught. In order to give them glimpses, as it were, of the experiences that they shared with Jesus so that they could look back on those moments and kind of process that from a sanctified way of thinking. Jesus says the Spirit will come. He will instruct. He will help the forgetful and fearful disciples. Remember what Jesus has previously said and done. Jesus' words and ways are to shape us. They're to influence us. They're, They're to be what we rally around and how we order our lives. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary on this passage that obedience to Christ is the most natural, and then he puts in quotations, supernatural thing in the world. You and I cannot and will not obey Jesus unless we are connected to him with real faith. And then that obedience is so natural or supernatural that it's almost automatic because we are with him. Abiding in Jesus means he's abiding in you. And therefore, the hallmark characteristic of the Christian is obedience to Christ. Our God speaks, we follow. This is the fruit that's produced. It's obedience. So as we turn to the aspect of prayer in verse 7, we now see that an obedient believer proves effective in prayer. Not because they've got a hold on God or because pastors have God's ear to a greater length than any other person in the church. No, each of us can come to God and pray because he loves us. And we can have confidence that when we pray according to his will and for his glory that he will answer those prayers. This fruitful prayer life brings glory to the Father and it brings glory to the Son and that's where we see verse 8 as the summary of all that has uh, transpired before. Jesus says in verse 8, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He's summarizing the principle of verses 1 and 7, 1 through 7. What is this whole language of abiding? John, as a writer, he kind of writes in circles. You read 1 John and you feel like you're, you're just caught in a time warp where he's going back and over the same stuff time and time again. Because John has a way of communicating that is intentional to show us a singular truth from many different angles. Abiding in Jesus is simply this. It's obeying Jesus. 
And why does anybody ever want to obey Jesus? Well, you don't, unless you've experienced his love. And that changes everything. Jesus forgives sinners. And when sinners experience that forgiveness, that is so profound that now he owns their hearts not because he's wrested them from their hands and not because he's bribed them or stolen them or cajoled them or anything like that. He's won their heart because of his great love. Jesus moves to his second observation, this metaphor. He applies it to discipleship, and he calls the disciples to abide in him. And verses 9 through 16 go a lot faster than the first eight because that was the principle Let's see how it expresses itself as he expands and explains on this vine and branches metaphor. We are told that the Father's love for the Son is absolute. And that is the same for the Son's love for us. And the reason the Son loves us is because the Father loved us first. And the Son is, is in a real sense, a channel, a conduit for the Father's love to, for us to experience it. What does divine, look like, uh, divine love look like? Well, verse 10 is significant to help us answer this question. You look at verse 10, especially the second half of it, where Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. <clears throat> you see, Jesus' love with the Father has led to his obedience. Now we see that obedience is what it means to abide in Jesus. And in his love. How did Jesus demonstrate his love for the Father? How did he do this for all the world to see? By his obedience, even to the point of death on a cross? And so also, we are challenged that our love for Christ will result in obedience. He loved us first. He chose us. It's not that our obedience prompts Christ to love us. That's not the way it works. Jesus isn't saying that I will love you because you first loved me or that by your obedience you have now purchased my love and affection. No, Jesus is not saying that at all. In fact, verse 16 makes it very clear that he loved us first and he chose us. And therefore, the abiding on us, the obedience from us, is all downstream from that transformational love experience of knowing that God has forgiven us of all our sins through Christ. Now, I realize that this standard starts, it's such a stark contrast. On the one hand, you have obedience that leads to fruitfulness. And on the other hand, you have no obedience no fruitfulness, and it leads to burning. There's no middle ground here. And therefore, it might make some of us tremble a little bit in our faith and wonder if Jesus and John are placing such a huge burden on us as disciples that anything less than perfection is apostasy. And if we aren't just perfect in our faith, then we too will be cut off from Christ. Let's just think about this for a moment. Jesus is outlining a standard that is based on himself. He is the vine, 
He is the way, the truth, the life. He's all the right and good things we are not. Therefore, He is the standard, not expecting us to ever live up to that standard, this side of heaven. He knows it's an impossibility. But what Jesus is saying is, I have done these things for you so you can rest in my love. Hear me. Our obedience will be spotty at best. But there will be obedience. Do you hear what I'm saying? The best way to learn more of what is expected for us who abide in Jesus is to read 1 John, where John emphasizes Jesus' loving words and how we're to love not only his words and his teaching, but his disciples, and how obeying him is going to produce a joy and assurance in us. What Jesus is focused on in this passage is the pattern that he provides for us. A pattern which we are to follow, but he knows we can't do it perfectly. And he declares that he is in us. And his presence in us is reflected by our obedience to him. Therefore, it is those who will experience the joy that Jesus possesses when they obey him, just as he obeyed the Father. Jesus is now promising these disciples his joy and his love. And you think back to the joy that he brought to his father. The joy of his obedience. And now he's promising that all who obey him will share that same experience. They will know comfort, peace, love, and joy. And we as Christians, we experience these even in part. Even even though we suffer greatly in this world, the joy of the Lord is indeed our strength. The peace of God does indeed pass all understanding. The comfort of our Lord, who is like in every way touched by every infirmity that we have, but without sin, that he, the knowledge that he intercedes for us in our weakness is a great comfort. And it is enough to even eclipse and block out the heaviness of the sorrows that we may experience in this world. I think all that Jesus has taught can be summarized in this one command, in this one verse, in verse 12. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, this isn't idolatry. We don't love others more than we love God. The law uh, is still intact Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, this is the first commandment. But the second, Jesus says elsewhere, is like unto it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? In this context, the neighbor is, is y'all. Your brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church. And Jesus says that obedience... To him is going to involve this new command to love other believers. And in verse 13, he even uses his own coming death as a demonstration of his great love for them, as well as the standard of how they are to love one another. It's going to cost you something. He understood this, which is why he wrote, uh, John understood this, which is why he wrote these words in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As we look at verses 14 and 15, Jesus shifts from this status of a teacher, a rabbi, and his disciples, the, that of a, a ruler and his servants, and he pivots to calling them friends. He does something we haven't seen in the scripture since the day of Moses. He called his disciples his friends. Now, whatever you may think of friendships, I'm not talking about social media, even though it's easy to poke Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But however you define friends, this is probably not the kind of friendship that Jesus is referring to. Here's what I think he's speaking of. He's telling them that for the first time, he will share his heart with them. He will tell them the why and the what. Masters are used to just saying, do this and do this. Servants, kids, servants don't get to ask the boss, why? Why? No, they, servants just do. And Jesus is now changing things in such a way, he's like, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you where I'm going. I'm going to tell you how all this is going to fit together to bring glory to God and good to all who believe in me. He's stating, I'm, I'm inviting you into a new kind of relationship. You have my confidences. I'm going to share things with you. And this reinforces the joy that comes to us by abiding in Christ and learning to obey him is that we also learn his heart. Sometimes obedience is hard, isn't it? I mean, you aren't given, why am I suffering right now in this way and for this duration? You're not given those details, but to know the heart of Christ, that should give each and every one of us confidence that what we're enduring is not wasted, it's not lost on God, it's not outside of his control. In fact, it is according to his good purposes. And he simply doesn't want us to figure out what to do next. He just wants us to obey on the, on the level that we're called to obey, obedience. Again, their obedience isn't what makes them Jesus' friends. Their obedience is what characterizes friends of Jesus. That last night, the disciples only understood in part... John wrote this gospel many years after receiving the Holy Spirit and with a much fuller understanding of who Jesus was and Jesus' thoughts on the matter of salvation. So we see in John's writing that the Spirit of God has illuminated and given him inspiration and understanding to fill in those spots of his mind and what he was able to recall of Jesus' words that night. And John is just marveling at the fact that Jesus has given his disciples not just a front row seat at the most insane event that's ever going to come into the world, but he's actually given them backstage passes as well. Full access. They can go hang out in the trailers of the superstars. They're going to have a weekend with them. I mean, whatever analogy you want to use, it's all access passes. In God's unfolding drama... Peter tapped into this. He also remembered this and speaks of it in 
set in 1 Peter 1 and verses 10 through 12, that there were generations of prophets that longed to look into these things, and they've been made known to us in these last days. What a privilege. I think Jesus, knowing the weakness of our flesh, clearly and pointedly pivots. He's just told the disciples in verse 15, I'm calling you friends. Everything I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. I mean, just as quick as these guys' heads could swell, Jesus wants to lovingly poke them. Guys, look at verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Lest any of us get a big head, Jesus makes it very clear that this glorious station of being a friend of Christ, a follower of Jesus, one who obeys him because you've been transformed by his love and your heart is to serve him, albeit imperfect as it is, you want to do things now you never wanted to do before. There's been a transformation in you. He wants us to remember that he chose us, not the other way around, and that he chose us to go and bear fruit. A fruit that will endure. And herein lies the mission. It is to go and make disciples. The chosen ones are loved and sent. Part of their obedience is to live on mission. Bearing fruit that has eternal benefit and value. So a final word Let me just address the kind of fruit I think that Jesus has been looking for all along. Briefly speaking, it is is the same fruit that he demonstrated. A categorical term of obedience. And yet, this obedience is going to manifest itself in countless ways under the Spirit's work. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives will respect their husbands as Christ submitted to the Father. Children will obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It will manifest itself in the Christian who says, I'm not going to keep going back to the stuff I used to do. I'm going to stay away from friends that encourage me to do things wrong, friends that lead me to sin against my conscience. It will be seen by the Christian who rejects living by sinful passions. It will be seen by our obedience in taking the gospel to the lost around us and supporting those who take the gospel to the lost around the world. Ironically enough, it will even be seen by our gathering together on Sundays with the body of Christ to worship Him on the Lord's Day. It will be seen by our obedience to the many one another commands in the New Testament, like to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to be patient with one another's faults, to forgive one another, to submit to one another, to exhort and rebuke one another as the need may arise, to encourage and edify one another, to speak the truth to one another, to seek the welfare of others before ourselves, to humble ourselves before one another. Jesus has identified himself as the true vine, and he has called his followers to abide, code for obey him. And while simultaneously 
setting apart that Israel failed to be the true vine, Jesus is, while he's also calling disciples to continue to obey him after he leaves and goes to heaven, Jesus is also making a third statement. He is calling the people who are hearing this to believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's take Jesus' final words in verse 16 as a prompt to prayer. He closes, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Father, we ask that you will give faith to believe in Jesus. To believe all the things that he says about himself. To believe all the things that the Old Testament writers, whether that's Psalms or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, to believe the record of your revelation that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, the life. That this vine image is life-giving. We pray and ask you, Father, to keep us and produce obedience in us. Cause us to rejoice in your wise and loving pruning. And we ask all this for the purpose of your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment to reflect on what we've heard this morning. We're going to sing in our closing song, What Child Is This? It's an apt question. Jesus comes initially in the form of a baby, disguised just like the little babies in our congregation and in our gathering this morning. And yet there was something miraculous, divine about him. He's now a full man standing before us in John 15, declaring himself to be the way to life. What child is this? It all depends on how you view him, as a savior or as someone to be sidestepped. So let's take a moment to reflect on that before Joel and the worship team leads us in what child is this.